Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. So John Mark last week made this statement, and um, as he was talking about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, he said that any human action or achievement without dependence on the Holy Spirit is an act of the flesh. Any human action or achievement without dependence on the Holy Spirit is an act of the flesh. And so I'll pick up from Galatians 5 verse 24 through to 6 verse 5. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he has something, when he has nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Keeping in step with a spirit. This is military imagery. Uh, this is imagery that denotes something of unity and purpose. And when, when an army is marching, it is, uh, it is marching with a sense of purpose, is marching with a sense of unity. Keeping in step with a spirit means to be purposeful and to be united with a spirit. Now, my hiking pace is a fast hiking pace. I think it's just a brisk walking pace. <laughs> my children disagree. They say that my pace is that of a zombie apocalypse and that we're trying to outrun the zombies that are chasing us. I always blame the dog who actually just walks really fast. But part of the problem with a pace that's hard to keep in step with is that people don't, aren't able to hear me. So I'll be walking and I'll be talking and people are like, Dad, we can't hear you. Well, I'm, I'm like, speed up, then you can hear me. And they're like, you could slow down and we could hear you, you know? Um, and when you're not keeping pace with someone, you can't hear what they're saying. You can't hear where they're leading you to, what they're asking you to do, or what they're leading you away from. And that's what it means to be in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is trying to remind us of who we are. And the first and most important thing about keeping in step with the Spirit is that it always starts from a point of our identity. In Galatians 4, Paul reminds the Galatian church, and he says, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. If you are His child, then you are also an heir through God. Now, when we keep in step with the Spirit, we are responding out of the certainty of the fact that we are adopted sons and daughters. Keeping in step with the Spirit means that the Spirit helps me to act like who I already am in Jesus Christ. The Spirit helps me to walk in line with who I've already become when I placed my faith in Jesus. And living in step with the Spirit always starts with the reality of Abba Father. It always starts with a love relationship, with an understanding that I'm deeply held in the grip of His grace. Now, we know that we can obey someone without loving them, but the reality is, is that when we are loved, 
we in turn love someone and end up obeying them. So we know that we can obey someone without loving them, but when we know that we are deeply loved, we in turn love and therefore end up obeying. One of the realities that we need to come to terms with when we talk about being in step with the Spirit is that His affection for us is completely unaffected by our behavior. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I said nothing you can ever do will make God love you more. Nothing you can ever do will make God love you less. Because when you are in Christ Jesus, you are united with Christ, and your standing as an adopted son and daughter of the living God is unshakable. Now, one of the prayers that I pray when I'm traveling is this, Father, may there be an empty seat next to me. Okay, barring that, if there is no empty seat next to me, I say, God, can you, can you please make sure that person is really little, you know? Um, and so after traveling for 16 hours on the first flight, an eight-hour layover, and now I'm on the four-hour flight from um, uh, Qatar to um, Kathmandu, and there's this uh, little girl, and I mean, she's in her 20s, so she's sitting there next to me, and I'm like, yes, she's little. She was, she was little. I'm like, I'm blessed. This is cool. I'm going to sit there, and this is going to be very different to my India trip, because on my India trip, I was viciously sick. I have never used an air sickness bag. That was the time I used an air sickness bag. Um, and it, it was mainly because um, the person next to me had taken off his sandals and had started playing with his, with his toes and flicking whatever he found in his toes. And I'm sitting there with the air sickness bag going, <laughs> And then he turns to me and says, am I okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. Could you stop playing with your feet, you know? And he's like, sorry, you know, and he stops playing with his feet. Anyway, that was a bad flight. This is why I pray for the good flights. This young girl's sitting next to me, and, um, and so I, I start chatting to her. And I, I don't really feel like chatting to her. It's a long day, but she, I start chatting to her. And uh, I find out that she's from Minnesota, and uh, she has decided to go to Nepal um, to meet her sister. She's never been anywhere in her life. This is her first trip. So I'm like, wow, that's brave, you know? Um, and then I said, what are you going to do this? So her sister's a missionary, and, and so she's going to just spend some time with her. And I'm like, oh, are you a follower of Jesus, you know? And she says, I think so. I said, oh, well, well like, what do you mean? She says, I just, I just am not good enough. Oh my goodness, something inside me just rose up when I heard her say that. And I started preaching grace to her in that moment. And I said, you can never, that is so untrue. You are a daughter of the living God. I, exactly what I've said to you, nothing you can ever do will make you unacceptable in His sight. She said, yes, but there's all these scriptures that talk about, you know, um, fruits of the flesh. And I'm like, you know what? I know about that because we've been studying that. And there was a moment where she just started shaking and she just started crying. And I, I said to her, Elizabeth, I want you to know this. You are God's daughter. He is pleased with you. And she just started weeping next to me. The guy on the other side... A Nepalese policeman didn't know what to do, you know what I mean? He just kind of turned and sat there. 
It's in that moment that I recognized that a lot of what she had to deal with was this idea of, of how do I keep in step with the Spirit, and how do I do what I know God has called me to do while living in this reality that, that there, there is a way for me to walk that represents Him. Um, and so we talked for a long time, and you know, she wrote a bunch of stuff down, and then, and then she said to me, I think it's the coffee that's made me all anxious. And then I said to her, no, I think God decided that today he wanted to remind you of how deeply loved you are. And so this, this understanding of being able to live out of our identity, of being able to say, yes, I will fail. Yes, I will be overtaken by sin. Yes, there will be moments where I need forgiveness and I need people to come around me and help me. The reality of walking in the Spirit, the most important and key thing about walking in the Spirit is knowing that the first thing of being able to walk in the Spirit is knowing that I am deeply loved and adopted into God's family. Out of that safety and security comes the ability to walk in the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit is another way of of saying that I am mature or I am maturing in Jesus. And part of the challenge is that is that we think that maturity is age. You know, if I, if I become older, then I'll become more mature. This was my first trip as a 50-year-old, um, and, uh, and they started using the term after my name to say elder. So like, you know, in, in the States you would say Elder Nick, in, in Nepal you would say Nick the Elder, you know? And, uh, and, and so I'm like, I don't like that. I, I, I don't like the fact that I'm being referred to as an elder, you know? Because there's the sense of, the, you know, the longer you've been alive, the more mature you are. And I'm like, that's not necessarily true. You could just have been dumb for a long time, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, being alive for a long time does not necessarily make you wise in and of itself. What about this intelligence? You know, if we, if we are really, people that are intelligent are the most mature. That is not necessarily the case. What about people that have a high EQ or high emotionally intelligent? That also doesn't necessarily make them mature in Jesus. How about people that are really serious about everything? If I'm really serious, then that means that I'm mature. No. You know, one of the, the interesting things of the markers of Christianity is joy. That joyful people can also be mature people. Serious people are not automatically mature. Ultimately, it is a life that is fueled by the Spirit where Christ is being formed in me. And that is what maturity is. We also know that it's not perfection. And I've said this before, what, what the Bible speaks about is progress, not perfection. We know this, otherwise Paul wouldn't have to say, if your brother is sinning or if he is caught in a transgression, so he's not expecting perfection. He's saying it will happen where your brother is caught in a transgression. And this is what you should do when this happens. There is a way, a pattern of dealing with failure that we restore people in a spirit of gentleness. Because otherwise, those burdens become too heavy for us to carry. And now this morning, I'm not going to talk about burdens and loads because I already, I already covered that when we did our series on the one another's, carrying one another's loads. What I want to talk about is when I'm out of step with the Spirit, then I become conceited and I'm provoking and I become someone that is envious of other people. So we look at that. What does conceited mean? It means just an air of superiority. And I remember in the Galatian church, there were Jews that felt that they were better than the Greeks. The Greeks knew that they were better than everyone else. 
They were the free, they were the slaves, they were the males and the females, and they, there was always this sense of like, where do I fit in into this social hierarchy? Now, the, the term conceited, the, the, the Greek word literally means the gathering of glory to myself or the pointing of glory to me. Now, when you're conceited, most of us think of someone that is very arrogant, and there's definitely an element to that, and that's what I would call loud conceit, someone that is very arrogant and comes across loud and bold and brash. But the problem is we tend not to be overtly conceited. Most of us are what I call covertly conceited. None of us would listen to a person talk and then say to that person, well, now that I've heard you talk, I'm utterly convinced that I am way better in you, than you in almost every way. Um, and the more you talk, the more I'm convinced of that fact. So keep talking, and it just elevates my own image of myself. We probably wouldn't say that. We would use discreet conceit, and discreet conceit is the eye roll whether it's an actual eye roll or whether it's an internal eye roll. The way that I point glory or gather glory to myself is to diminish others that are around me. And this can be within the church of God or outside of the church of God. And conceit is much harder to engage in if my posture is I am what I am by His grace. But conceit is easy to get into when our posture is, I am what I am because of my hard work and effort, then it's much easier to be conceited. How about provoking one another? And provoking one another means to tempt, to test, or to bait. How many of you have heard this phrase? Come at me, bro. Have you heard that? Come at me. Okay, that's, that's like a, a real clear way of provoking someone, of actually saying, come on. You, got, you, you, you want to fight me? You got something to say? Come at me. Or the provoking can also be what I call the niggle. Have you guys heard of that term, the niggle? It's like when someone niggles you. No? Give me a better term. Needle. Needle? Okay. There we go. Just to let you know, most of the people in Nepal understood my terms. It was a British colony, so we have that kind of thing. I'm just saying, you know. And so there's this sense in which, in which people, people can be bold and brash, conceited about provoking you, or they can needle you. Um, and, and needling and provocation generally comes, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna say this, um, I'm late to the office party, the, the series, The Office, and so I've been re-watching it, and, and I realized something. When you're bored, you tend to provoke people. So like if Jim just got on with his job and he wasn't bored, we really wouldn't have the office because he wouldn't provoke Dwight, right? You know, like which bear can run the fastest or, you know, we do, we do those kinds of things. And so I thought about the whole issue of provocation. And I think one of the, one of the problems is that when we provoke one another and we're conceited because there really isn't the sense of purpose in our lives. And so we look to needle or provoke one another because it just at least gives us something to do. We identify areas of weakness and areas where other people are out of step, and we point those areas out to them. So we identify an area of belief or action that that person has said that they want to behave in this way or they don't want to behave in that way, and then we point out the fact that they aren't behaving in that way. Now, this is not the same as being held accountable. 
This is not the same as actually wanting to help our brothers and sisters live in alignment with what the Word of God is saying. Because when we identify weaknesses and we bait them, this is not actually what Jesus did. So what Jesus did is he said to the Pharisees, you say this, but you do this. So what he was doing is he was pointing out their hypocrisy. Most of the time when we provoke people, we're pointing out their failures. Now, failure and hypocrisy are two different things. Now, if I decide that I want to live in a way that is honoring to God, and I fail in those areas, that's not me being hypocritical. But if I say that I want to do something and I never make the effort to do that, that is being hypocritical. And so we provoke one another when we point out those areas and we actually say, you said you were gonna do this and you didn't do it. And we help people feel really good about the areas of failure. I, I am unfortunately a needler. I'm not, I'm not one of these kind of bold prov provocateurs. And I remember one area that I, I've, I felt really bad about. And uh, it was when, when we were doing a project and um, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency made us plant 10 trees for every tree that we were removing. And so we could either plant these 10 trees in a specific space or we could basically give money slash extortion to the <laughs> conservancy, okay? And one of, the, one of the ways that we were at, were, we went to actually go and see where we were going to plant these trees. And, uh, and these three environmental um, protection people arrived, each in their own suburban. And so I just couldn't help myself. I, and I kind of, in that moment, I was like, so how many of these trees are being protected by the three of you driving separately with your Suburbans, right? So, yeah, I mean, it could be, there's, there's an element of truth to that, you know? Did I achieve anything by that provocation? Let me, let me ask you. Did they, did, they, did they sit down and say with me, you know, Nick, you have a point. Let's, let's talk about our inconsistencies here. You know what I mean? Like, what can we do better? No. It just created a barrier between me and them. Um, and that's what provocation does. It creates a barrier. We, we provoke one another when we fail to see the log in our own eye. Now, Jesus talks about this in Luke 6. Why do you see the splinter in your brother's or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, brother, sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye, when you don't see the log in your own eye? You deceive yourselves. First, take the log out of your eye, and then, and this is important, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. What's important to recognize here is that Jesus is not saying, don't be concerned about your brother and sister and don't worry about the splinters in their eyes. What he is saying is that make sure that you've looked at yourself first so that you are actually able to look with clarity into someone else to be able to help them in that area. He never says, stop messing with other people's splinters. He says, take the log out of your own eyes so that you can see more clearly to take the splinter out of someone else's. And so the question that we've got to ask is, is when we approach each other, and we should because we've talked about this in terms of being known, loved, and challenged. We've talked about this in terms of um, being those that speak the truth with grace. We've spoken about the fact that we have a community responsibility to be able to be truthful with one another, especially when we're being led astray. We need to check ourselves first. 
As I get older, I'm beginning to grow hair in weird parts of my body, right? Those of you that are older, Grace is looking at me like, no, it's too early for you, Grace. You know what I mean? And when I was younger, I would think to myself, why does this old man not realize that he has this one long hair sticking out of his nose? Like, does he not see it? It's long enough for him to actually be able to see it. How does this guy not realize that he's harvesting hair in his ears? You know what I mean? Like, like what, what is happening here? Can I tell you what is happening? They can't see it. I know because I'm looking in the mirror thinking to myself, is there anything there? I can't see it. I need this massive magnifying glass to be able to see anything. And oftentimes in our lives, even if we want to see it, we can't see it as clearly as Fallon, who will tell me, Dad, you have this long hair. I'm like, well, do something about it, you know? She'll pull it out. There are things in our lives that we can't see. We need the rest of the body to actually be able to help us and say, do you need help with that? Finally, envying one another. Now, those two, being conceited and provoking one another, come from a posture of superiority. Envying one another comes from a posture of inferiority. Now, the Galatian church, as I said, was very mixed. It had rich people, poor people, slaves free, males, females, Greeks, and Jews. And there was much opportunity to be envious of one another. And most of the time, we envy someone from a place of inferiority or from a place of it's not fair. You know, it's not fair that you have this and that I don't. I mean, can you imagine being a slave in that community and knowing that there are other people that, that are free? Uh, knowing that you are a Greek in that community and that Jews look down on you. They, you're envious of what other people have. You're envious of their material things. You're envious of the opportunities that they have. Maybe you're envious of the relationships that they have. Maybe you're envious of their circumstances. As a single person, maybe you're envious of the fact that someone is married, or as a married person, maybe you're envious of the fact that someone is single. You know, I'm not saying that I am, clearly. Let me, <laughs> let me clarify that. I am not envious of single people. Um, but, but there are, within, within communities, there are things that we can be envious of. Man, I'm envious of the fact that you get to go to work and enjoy what you do every day. I'm still stuck in this job, and I'm still trying to find my career. I'm envious that you actually have a job and I'm retired. Or I'm envious that you get to stay at home and, and I don't. And, and there's those things that actually can become burdensome to us. Now, if we envy something that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, we can envy laudable things. You know, when I was in Nepal, I was amazed at Puran and Raman, are the, are the two apostolic figures. And they can preach in English, in Nepalese, and in Hindi. Not only can they preach and they're interpreting, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh my goodness. I mean, I can speak in English and in Greek and in Afrikaans. I can't preach. I certainly can't interpret. I'm looking at that saying, man, I wish I had your faith. I said to Puran, how do you establish churches? He says to me, it's easy. <laughs> you know, so when, when someone responds like that, you know it's not going to be good for your soul. You know what I mean? When you ask someone, how do you plant churches? says, it's easy. Then you know, oh dear, I'm just going to be in sackcloth and ashes after this. He says, my sons and their friends, they take their musical equipment. We go up into the hill tribes. And I mean, we were talking like hill tribes. People haven't um, encountered um, other, other people, certainly haven't encountered whites. And even Nepalese that live in the plains are different to Nepalese that um, are in the hill country. He says, we take them in, in the hill country. We, we play music, and they've never heard music before. And so we play music, and they all come down. And I preach the gospel, and people get saved. And then we start a church. 
And I'm like, that does sound easy, right? I mean, that does sound easy. So like, what happens when you go to a village, you know? And he says, oh, that's easy, you know? When we go to a village, um, we tell people that if you're sick, come and Jesus will heal you. And they get healed and they go back and they tell their family and then we plant a church. And I'm sitting there going, oh, dear Jesus, please, what is, what is happening? What is happening here? Now, I know, guys, I know that God in his sovereignty has placed us in different circumstances. I know that there are things that are much more difficult for them. Hira is married to his second wife because his first wife died of pneumonia because they couldn't get simple antibiotics from where Kathmandu was to his wife in time. She passed away. They are desperate for about $60,000, $60,000 to build a four-story church building. I mean, they have their own challenges. But man, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I'm kind of envious of you right now. I'm envious of what God is doing. And I know that they're envious of us. Now, one of the things that we keep in step with the Spirit is that we are, we, within the, the context of actually being able to see someone like that, we make sure that our envy does not become something destructive but it's something that God can use for us to help one another. When it's difficult, you've got to ask yourself this. Am I resentful, angry, or irritable? So if envy has gripped you in a negative sense, am I resentful, angry, or irritable? Or do I feel defeated, useless, or hopeless in the situation that I'm in? Because if you do, it leads to dissatisfaction and mistrust in God, it also leads to the denigration of who you are and the gifts that God has placed in you and the way in which God created you to. If I'm conceited and provoking and envious, then the, the dominant response in my heart is I'm too important to help you. Verse 3 says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And when we are conceited, arrogant, and provoking one another, we are not willing to or able to help one another because we don't think we can, right? If we're in that inferiority place or that superiority place, we aren't able to bear one another's burdens. We usually come with a sense of, well, you got yourself into this. You can get yourself out of it. Or from an inferiority perspective is, what can I do? What can I do? Like when I say to Burn, Burn, how can we help you? He says, please pray, we need more leaders. Please pray, we need more finances. That's what it does. When, when instead of envying, I'm like, I can do that. I can do that because God is doing something unique here. When I'm conceited and provoking and envying, I don't test my own work. It says, let each one test or examine his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. And my wife says, what does that mean? Basically, what it means is, is that we don't compare ourselves to one another. That is not the way in which God is asking us to examine ourselves. We examine ourselves according to the word of God. It means to take a little taste of. To test or examine means to take a little test of. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and cup. At the airport, I was, I was in the line uh, just before I left, Panda Express, and there's this, I know, I know, right? What was I thinking? I'm going to eat rice for the next 10 days. Why would I start with Panda Express? <laughs> ah. Anyway, 
behind me, there was, there was a, a husband, and his wife was trying to get his attention. Okay, do you want us to sit here? Do you want us to sit there? I mean, look, she was quite annoying, okay, because, like, she couldn't make a decision for herself. But he really just snapped at her, and I said, oh, man, gee, that guy's being real rude. And the Spirit of God says to me, really? I've seen you do the same thing. Man, in that moment... I'm sitting there thinking, man, I'm not in step. Or actually, I am in step with Spirit. Because the Spirit is revealing something to me. When I'm testing my own work, when I'm bugged by something and it scratches at my soul, the Spirit is revealing something to me. When, I'm when, when there's a level of discomfort, it's a clue that the Spirit of God is trying to do something. I mean, for me, one of the difficulties, one of the joys of traveling alone is that I'm traveling alone. <laughs> I don't need to take care of anyone else's poor decision making. You know what I mean? It's, you know. <laughs> so, so I, I guess I'm still actually making poor decisions right now. So, but my wife, my, my wife and family say, we like vacation, Nick. We don't like travel, Nick. You know? And I'm like, well, girl, you got to get travel, Nick, before you get vacation, Nick. So, you know, you got to put up with it. But in that moment, I recognized that speck and that log. And I was like, oh, wow. Oftentimes, when we look at someone else's behavior, we're not asking that question, is that behavior present in my life? We should be. Because the grace of God is able to help us. Now, I want you to make sure that you're not too impressed uh, when an area is, when, when you are not challenged by an area that's in your strength. So, for example, the area of punctuality, right? And you, we tend to judge other people on the basis of our own strengths. So if your strength is punctuality, you have no idea how someone can be that disorganized to be late all the time, right? And that is a spiritual virtue to be on time. You know, that it's, it's, part, of, it's part of, you know, love, joy, peace, punctuality, faithfulness, you know, right? And so what we do is instead of looking at the log in our own eye, we judge people on the basis of our strengths. So if someone is really kind and really generous, then they really are bugged by someone who isn't kind and who isn't generous. And, and we, we, we judge each other on the basis of where we are strong. And actually what we should be saying is, you know, we have different strengths and weaknesses. That's not saying that one is, you know, that, that, that we shouldn't challenge one another, but let's not judge each other on the basis of our strengths and weaknesses. And then lastly, comparison is a curse, but perspective is a gift. You know, one of the things about being conceited and being um, provoking one another and being envious is that we are constantly comparing one another. And what comparison does is comparison dulls conviction. Because when the Spirit of God tries to actually scratch at your soul and bring up that emotion of when you're annoyed at that man for treating his wife like that, where you say, well, I don't treat her that bad. I may treat her like that, or I may snap at her, but not like that. So when we compare, the Spirit of God is trying to bring conviction, but we use comparison to deflect what the Spirit is doing. Well, I'm not as bad as. That may be true, but I'm not as bad as. We're constantly comparing ourselves from a place of superiority, I'm not as bad as this person, or a place of inferiority. What do I have to offer? Now, the gift of perspective as opposed to comparison, that is a massive gift. So when we look at each other, 
It is the gift of perspective of actually being able to say, yeah, man, our house is crazy. I never have a moment to myself. There are often people in my house. I don't know how they got here and when they're leaving. But I don't go to a house and I'm alone for the rest of the night. I don't go alone and think to myself, God, I don't want to walk in here because there's no one here to greet me. The gift of perspective helps us as a community to actually be able to say there are people in our community that are alone, that would love to be in a house that is boisterous and full of activity and full of energy and vice versa. When we're conceited, provoking, and envying, we aren't walking or keeping in step with the Spirit because we're not loving one another, because this is key, because we are not free. We still care too much about what the world thinks about us. Our values are tied to them, and we are burdened by that because we are unwilling to or unable to help. We believe that. But when our identity is settled in Jesus, we're not insecure or fearful, and we want to help our brother or sister. Band, you can come up. You know, when someone repeats something multiple times, we should pay attention. Paul talks about putting to death in multiple letters in the New Testament. But he also talks about adoption multiple times. And in Romans, he says this. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness, a life that is fueled by self and not the spirit. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you're going to die. Does, does, he, does that really happen? If I'm selfish, am I suddenly struck down and I'm dead? No. What he means is you're not going to experience abundant life in the spirit. But if by the spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You did not receive a spirit of slavery that led you back into fear. You received a spirit that shows you you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. How do we deal with conceit? Is we look at the humility of Jesus. And this is not the lesson of like, if you're conceited, be more humble. If we could do that, we would have done it. Okay, how do we deal with the fact that we are conceited? We look at the humility of Jesus, who was God himself, came to this earth in the form of a servant, humbled himself, himself to show us what true humility looks like, the opposite of being conceited. When we are prone to provoking one another, we look at the love of Jesus, who even though he did provoke the Pharisees in their hypocrisy, what he provoked us was towards love and good deeds. It was out of his love and affection. And if envy is beginning to grab hold of you, we need to look at what Jesus did with hearts full of gratitude. The fact that there is nothing I can do that will ever make, me God, ever make God love me more or less than this moment as his son and daughter. That everything was taken care of at the cross. Humility love and gratitude is the way in which Jesus entered our earth. It is the way in which the Spirit desires us to walk in step with Him. It is the way in which the Spirit leads us. So what I want us to do is just take a moment and actually do what the Scripture says and examine ourselves. 
And you look at this idea of examine yourself and you're like, ah, oh. no, I want you to examine yourself in the light of the love of God, not in the shadow of your own soul. I want you to examine yourself in the light of the love of God, not the shadow of your own soul. I want you to look as a secure son and daughter of the living God, not as an anxious orphan or slave. I want you to know that you've been healed and forgiven because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you have the Spirit of God inside you, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, because Jesus is raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, who shed His Spirit abroad in our hearts to enable us to live in the way in which we should live, and to know that God wants us to be free for our own sake and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, we're reminded that this was your body broken for our wholeness. We're reminded that this is the blood that you shed for our freedom. Father, we choose to approach this table with humility, in love, and in gratitude. And we choose to do that not only for the head of the church, but also for this body, this family. Jesus, I ask you to help us engage with humility, with love, and gratitude as secure sons and daughters of the living God. Freshly awaken us to the beauty of your cross. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, Please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.